This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 3D Pod. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of 3dprint.com. I'm here today, uh, today, as always, with Maxwell Vogue. Uh, who's a co-inventor of the 3D printing pen at 3 Doodler. And we have as our guest today, Zach Murphy, uh, who is from Velo3D. And Velo3D is a very exciting startup. Uh, first started, it was a stealth startup for a long time. And uh, first started to notice them because they, they were hiring a lot of people who were doing FPGA research. And they were hiring a lot of people whose papers I'd read on microstructural control and trying to control uh, 3D printing processes or metal 3D printing processes. And then they emerged out of nowhere with a, a kind of fully fledged metal printing technology that is, you know, in a lot of cases very similar to, to DMLS or, or the other metal printing powder bed metal printing technologies, but has some refinements and some potentially really, really exciting things. So that's why we're here today about uh, uh, talking to Zach. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and kind of share a little bit more about Velo's technology and what we're capable of. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. So can you tell us a little bit about how Velos got started and why you, the decision to go stealth for a couple of years there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think Bell was really founded out of um, uh, Benny Buller, who was our CEO and founder, uh, his experience with metal additive. And that came from conversations with other CEOs who were developing advanced technologies in uh, a number of different fields. And they told him that uh, metal additive was a great prototyping technology. And one of the things that uh, they were excited about was that they were reducing um, lead times for end use parts from, you know, uh, something like nine months down to three months, three or four months. And <laughs> fast and efficient. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, this was somewhat surprising because the kind of notion of rapid prototyping is like you have an idea, you cat it up, you hit print, and in a day you have something that you can work with. And that didn't seem to be um, quite the truth, uh, especially when it came to the industrial metal 3D printing, um, where there was still pretty significant um, lead times and design iterations and um, failures and kind of going back and forth until you finally end up with the uh, the end part. Um, so Velo3D was really founded with the notion of um, actually reducing that lead time to something manageable and, and speeding the total workflow from ideation uh, through having a final part in your hand. For the people that uh, you know maybe don't know, if you do DMLS or these technologies, you can. Uh, you have to come up with different support strategies to make sure the part doesn't rip itself apart. And you have to come up with different kind of build strategies as well for your part. So if you have a million, you want to print a million acetabular cups, and hip cups, that's fine. Even if these geometries are, are, you know, within reason different. But so you can do you can do that at a very high degree of, of repeatability, reliability. But if you want to get to your first unique geometry it often takes a long time to do that maybe you are failing like four or six builds and 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 each of these builds maybe will take you know with post-processing and all this you know a day or two or a couple of days even or maybe even a week so this really slows down you know your time to first part uh so you know it's very significant that Velo is saying that they can solve this so how long did Velos uh, stay in stealth mode and what was the logic or the decision behind that 
Yeah, so we were founded in uh, June of 2014 um, and remained in stealth mode for essentially four years. Um, and the, the biggest reason that we stayed in stealth mode is that there, uh, there's a lot of hype around metal 3D printing um, and, and a lot of promises have been made. Um, and as, as a group of engineers and even Benny as a physicist, um, we were kind of frustrated with that uh, approach to introducing products. And one of the things we wanted to, to do before we went public was to um, have systems at customer sites that were in production of qualified parts. And so we went through kind of our initial development efforts and beta testing and actually ended up with customers who were producing um, flight hardware um, in summer of last year. And at that point, we felt comfortable releasing a product to the market because we had some actual validation that there was the value in the product. Um, and, and we launched at IMTS last year in September. Did you find it difficult to find a partner that was willing to work with a company that hadn't announced uh, what, what they were doing or who they were at the time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think part of that is due to some of the, the hype around uh, metal 3D printing. I think especially being you know, a startup from Silicon Valley claiming to print parts that nobody else is able to print, it's pretty easy to dismiss what we are doing as vaporware. Um, and, and that's been one of the main challenges is we really have to come to the table with validation with parts that are, are tangible to show people that this really is possible. We're not just putting together a, a fancy PowerPoint and, and trying to convince on, on those merits. And was the timeline, I'm curious if, if there was a, a timeline initially and if you guys were ahead of schedule or behind schedule or right on schedule or can you share that or? <laughs> I, I can, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that uh, initially, you know, we didn't set out necessarily to build a machine and a print preparation software suite at the outset. Um, the initial goal was really to make a process that was something that you could kind of retrofit onto other systems um, and, and just expand the capabilities. But we pretty quickly realized that that wasn't uh, maybe a realistic goal. And so I think once we started developing the software and the hardware, um, the timeline changed pretty dramatically. Um, and we were, you know, roughly on schedule. I'd say we were a couple months behind schedule delivering first system. But uh, when you consider that we were building uh, uh, industrial dual laser, uh, one kilowatt laser powder bed system to the market, um, I, I actually am incredibly proud of the team and, and the way that they executed to make it happen in a, in a somewhat reasonable amount of time. Cool. And so machines have been built and they're now in the market, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. We have uh, machines at both OEMs and contract manufacturers that are making production hardware every day. Do you have an idea how many parts uh, the machines have made to date? Some of the parts that we're printing are, are really large. Um, so Fair. it might not, it might not be a, a huge <laughs> number of parts, um, but it's, it's, on the order on the larger parts we're probably in the um in the medium double digits i would say and what so your main focus on on your consumer at this point is it more in the aerospace industry or are you also looking at medical or like who who do you feel like you guys are trying to capture with this improved technology 
Well, I think the two obvious targets to begin with would be aerospace and medical because they seem to be the uh, fastest adopters, especially metal additive. Um, when we started looking at the, the real value of the system that we built, I think that a lot of it is realized more easily in aerospace components. Um, and so we've been really focused on, uh, on propulsion components for aerospace vehicles. So let's get into the details. What's, what makes this 3D printer so much better uh, than any other 3D metal 3D printer on the market? Beyond, <laughs> beyond just the speed, but like, is it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a good point. So we're not, you know, the name Velo implies speed. It's the Greek root for the word speed. Um, we're not necessarily saying that we print parts more quickly than other people. Uh, what we're doing is uh, kind of a, a twofold value proposition. So we have uh, the ability to print geometries that otherwise can't be printed or that would require uh, enough supports to make the part uneconomical at the end. Um, and then we also are really focused on quality of parts and, and we define that really as kind of the consistency of part outcomes and uh, traceability and documentation of the process and of the final part quality. What kind of um, after process do you have to do with your parts after they've been printed? So the parts are, are produced with a laser powder bed process and some of the post-processing that you're used to with other uh, more conventional metal AM systems are still applicable. So depending on the alloy, you will still have um, some heat treatments and maybe uh, hot isostatic pressing that you wanna do uh, at, at the end of uh, the print. Um, the support removal step is one of the main areas where we have a pretty significant advantage because we're able to print many geometries uh, without supports. And that can be a very tedious and very uh, labor intensive process to, to kind of get all of those supports off of the parts. Um, and then depending on what the final application is, there can often be machining steps if you have mating interfaces or seal surfaces um, that you would go through as kind of a final step in the production. And how's it work exactly? I mean, uh, you gave us a little bit of an idea, but more specifically, you know, okay, so it's laser powdered fusion, you do a lot with software, um, uh, and, and you, you presumably, you do a lot of more of melt pool monitoring and, and control and that kind of thing. I mean, how's it, how's it kind of work? How does it work more specifically? Sure, yeah, so uh, the total workflow is essentially to take a CAD model, um, and this is actual CAD data, not like a tessellated uh, file format like an STL, um, but to take the CAD model and import that into our flow uh, print preparation software, um, which you can use to orient the part, lay out a build, apply supports where necessary, um, and also dictate uh, processes on a per surface uh, level. So you can basically say, it's kind of like a machine drawing where you would have call outs on specific surfaces for um, surface finish or, or dimensional accuracy. Uh, that type of interaction with the part is what we've built into our software uh, in three dimensions. So you would prepare the part in flow um, and then uh, have the software create a build file. And that build file is the instructions for the machine, the cam, if you will, um, for our lasers. Uh, and in the printer, there are a number of things that are different. I think um, the recoder that we use is pretty dramatically different. Um, and it's one of the, the architectural differences that allows us to print these very low angle overhangs without supports. Um, and that's really one of the keys to unlocking new geometries. Um, and then the metrology that's built into the system allows us to operate in a much tighter process window. 
um, and to control that process very accurately. And then kind of as a, as a follow on to the metrology, you have all of this data that's generated that gives you a much deeper part traceability and documentation of the process. And is, it, is this a closed loop process? Or are you kind of closing the loop or how does it work? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. We have the capability in the system to uh, operate under closed loop melt pool control. Um, and it's a, a feature that's incredibly useful for process development um, because we can essentially test all of these different um, processes with specific thermal profiles to, to find the best solution, especially for these very difficult geometries. Um, and then use that to kind of build a complete process parameter set that can be applied to the total part geometry. Um, so I think it's important to note that you don't necessarily have to run with closed loop melt pool control once we have the processes fully developed. Um, but the functionality is is really an incredibly powerful tool. And so what kind of control do you have about, like if, if you're about on the melt pool itself, I mean, can you do things like change the, the laser or laser intensity, spot size, um, you know, speed, you know, the, the what, what do you have that, that gives you that kind of the control over the, the, the microstructure? So the things that really dictate success or failure in the laser powder bed systems is essentially the layer thickness of the material, uh, what type of material it is, and then the amount of energy applied by the lasers um, per unit area, per unit time. Um, and there are a number of different knobs you can turn to adjust that last bit. You can uh, absolutely change the spot size. So we do have a variable focus system. Um, you can adjust the scan speed, which is essentially how much energy you're putting in per unit time. Um, you can uh, change the way that you're controlling the laser power. Um, so that can either be in closed loop, where we're actually responding to the thermal signal in real time to adjust laser power, or it can be kind of a, a feed forward type of operation where you've already decided what is the best uh, laser power for specific features and use that to drive the laser power. Um, and those things all put together kind of dictate your, your melt pool size and stability. Um, and those are the critical aspects of, of printing uh, an accurate part. So if you're doing like a contour, are we able to, are you able to then at one point turn off the laser or, or significantly reduce the power during the contouring or, you know, given a given angle, maybe increase it or, or decrease it? Is that, is that the level of control you're seeing or? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the level of control that's necessary to be successful. Um, and I would say that's not, you know, that's not specific to Velo. I think that um, in general, in a laser powder bed system, when you're running a core parameter, you're running at a different spot size and speed and mm -hmm. laser power than you are on the contours. Yeah. Um, so it definitely does depend on the feature. I think we have a little bit more nuance in how our parameters are defined in that they're essentially a continuous function of the local geometry. So instead of having, you know, two different contour parameters and a core parameter, we have kind of a uh, infinitely variable contour parameter based on the local geometry. And does, it, does the system learn from successful build files or from parts or from these kind of things? Or <laughs> uh, I would say not yet. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's definitely something sexy about having all the data and, and implementing machine learning to refine the, the process itself. Uh, right now, it's kind of a, a meat-based learning, we like to call it. Um, so <laughs> there are people in the loop. You know, we have a process development team that's made up of some of the people you referenced, uh, I think, in the intro, who are 
very uh, experienced, knowledgeable metallurgists and, um, and and process engineers, especially from the semiconductor space. Um, so we're relying on them for a lot of the uh, the innovation and refinement at this point. And what are you guys doing with all these FPGA people? What are they? <laughs> <laughs> is that the, the the tool to monitor the uh, yeah the melt pool and stuff? Or? Yeah. So when, like I said previously, we we didn't originally intend to make a machine, um, <laughs> but it, as we started building the machine, I think one of the things we learned pretty quickly is that um, you know you can be a system integrator and you can buy a lot of off the shelf components and build up a system. The problem with that approach is that you pretty quickly run into areas where the subcomponent that you've bought is a black box and you're relying on whoever the actual end manufacturer is to kind of unlock or give you control of certain aspects. So the system that we've built is is uh, more or less completely custom and developed in-house. Um, so FPGA becomes a pretty critical aspect of being able to process things very quickly um, and, and, you know, react in real time, essentially. So there's been a lot of development around uh, control and um, processing that has required some pretty uh, high-end uh, equipment development. But what materials can the machine currently use? Currently, we're printing an Inconel 718 and uh, TIE 6.4, uh, and we're about to kick off our aluminum development, which should be pretty exciting. And is that um, and the the customers that are live? I don't, I don't know which ones you can talk about. What, what what kind of parts are they printing, and what materials for what kind of applications? I mean, give us a little bit more insight in that. Yeah, we see a lot of um, a lot of applications in kind of the we, we use the umbrella term fluid power um, for a lot of what we're doing. And I think underneath that there are uh, pump components, especially like turbo pumps, something that you'd see on a rocket engine. There are quite a few heat exchanger applications um, where our ability to produce these very thin walls across a wide angle range becomes really critical. Manifolding or like the uh, housing for a pump, a volute or a turbo housing um, are also areas where we have some pretty distinct advantages being able to build these circular uh, holes, essentially inner diameters without support material on the inside. Um, and really when you combine all this together there there are a couple of industries that have all of these components kind of in one uh, assembly and those are uh, rocket engines and gas turbines are really two of the kind of major drivers for for adoption of our system and are you are you seeing with these types of parts are these parts that could only be printed and under no circumstances could you really manufacture them with the same capabilities or a lot of times you know, I, I think in engineering, it's hard to say that anything is truly impossible. Fair. <laughs> yeah. With, you know, with enough time and money. Yeah, time and money, exactly. <laughs> I understand the advantage of if you only need one or two and you want to test it. But I'm yeah. curious, is like, if you're finding that people are now using this to make parts that traditional manufacturing simply it wouldn't be um, feasible within a realistic terms. Um, yeah, I, uh, the applications where we really see advantages are, are where the traditional manufacturing workflow is just complicated. So as an example, a shrouded impeller that you'd put in a high-end pump for like uh, volatile chemical processing or something like that, it's, it's traditionally made by taking a billet 
doing five axis machining to get kind of your lower um, lower impeller surface with the veins on it. And then also doing five axis machining on a shroud, making sure that those fit together uh, perfectly. And then going through like an E-beam welding process or brazing process to um, get those two to be merged. And that's a complicated workflow that tends to suffer from yield loss. Um, and there's, there's even some more interesting aspects of it. Like on the weld line, you can have heat affected zones that can lead to corrosion that's kind of unexpected. So if you're able to print the part in kind of one piece instead and, and have a single turning operation on the back end uh, to have a final end use part, then your workflow is dramatically simpler and the functionality can actually be much better. I mean, aerospace, I think, I think I'm think i really excited that aerospace is using this because it's so key for them. And then and they're doing, and then so much of the really good bits of, of AM, the you know integrated functionality, reduction of part count, reduction of weight, so much of that makes sense to them. And I think thanks to NASA proving that it was, it's faster to develop metal 3D printed parts and less expensive to develop them. I think a lot of these guys are on the bandwidth. So are, are you really seeing like, or, or do you think it's feasible to like see entire rocket engines or is, is that the type of thing that, that, that or, or pumps and that kind of thing? Is that the kind of, kind of thing that's also being used with your technology? Or? I, I think so. I think there are definitely some limits. Um, you know, laser powder bed as a technology requires that you fill a powder bed with uh, metal powder. And so if you're looking at like some very large components, there are definitely cases where it doesn't make sense. And there may be a better uh, manufacturing technology, maybe even a better additive technology. But, you know, if it's reasonably sized component, you know, something that's less than a meter cubed, then it's a candidate for metal additive. Our system currently is not large enough to fit some of these parts, um, but it, I think that there are, you know, there are things that can be done um, to address those applications as well. Yeah, I mean, those kind of parts, it seems feasible before you go to the Shockey Ultimac and Formaloy uh, yep. and the applications of this world. But and but is that because like Ink Canal and all that does does kind of point to towards you guys being really focused on aerospace? But the examples you gave earlier were much more prosaic kind of parts. Is is, is the volume much bigger in these kind of pumps and shrouded impellers and these kind of things? Is it just is this, this incredibly huge market that everyone else has been ignoring? Or pumps as a market are are everywhere. I mean, I think that that fluid power is a tremendously huge application. But you know, it's not. There are definitely applications where metal additive doesn't make sense, right? And if you're looking at something like a, a drinking water pump or mm -hmm. a water pump for kind of a you know civil engineering type of application, making an Inconel shrouded impeller is probably not the mm -hmm. best uh, solution just from a cost effectiveness point of view. But at the same time, there are innumerable pump applications that currently use a stainless steel impeller. And depending on what the use is, Inconel may actually be a better uh, part for that application. The reason that Inconel hasn't been used in the past is that it's traditionally much more expensive to make an Inconel impeller than it is a stainless steel impeller. When you look at metal additive, that kind of goes away because the material cost is a relatively insignificant portion of the total part cost. And in a lot of cases, Inconel powder is basically the same price as stainless steel. So you can actually get an impeller that has better functionality, um, better mechanical properties, uh, is more corrosion resistant uh, through some, you know, some interesting material substitutions and start to address a huge 
uh, swath of this market. What I think is also interesting, maybe for Impella, well, definitely with space and maybe for pumps, but definitely for like the manifold application, is this idea of like internal topology optimization, so looking at the inside of the parts, these paths through which these liquids or air or whatever flow through. And looking at if, if we can optimize that topology to make something flow faster, lose heat, whatever. Is that something you're, you're currently excited about? or? Yeah, I definitely am. And I, I think in, in my previous lives, I dealt with a lot of fluidic components where you'd end up, you have basically a, a billet of material. And in order to make a manifold, you end up cross drilling a bunch of ports through this block and then plugging ends of it where you don't want there to be a fluid passage. And the whole manufacturing process is, is complicated and and um, prone to leaking because of all of these different plugs and cross-drilled ports. And and you really have the opportunity to optimize fluid paths uh, with metal additive manufacturing because you can, you know, directly connect without right angle turns, um, without kind of cross-drilled ports um, to make to make everything actually connect. Are you actively like trying to talk to large corporates and like saying, okay, guys, you know, give us let us print your entire you know spare parts database that kind of thing is that the kind of stuff you're, you're looking at or we definitely see a, a huge opportunity there and i think you know from a from an engineering and manufacturing perspective when you're doing a new product you have a lot of things to contend with uh, as far as the design of the actual product uh, its functionality and if you also are adding a, a new manufacturing kind of an unproven manufacturing method into that mix it becomes difficult Whereas if you have a proven product um, and you're looking at a new manufacturing uh, technology, it's a little bit easier of a jump really to be able to, to kind of get to uh, a useful product. Are you guys specializing? Are you guys like, you know, so for the ink and all the materials you have, that seems very really aerospace, but aluminum, yeah, there's lots of aerospace applications for that, but also tons of other ones. I mean. Are you guys really like laser-like focusing on certain applications? Are you kind of like scattershot, like let's try stuff? What's your go-to-market at the moment? I think we try to be somewhat focused. It's it's kind of easy to be uh, to to start pursuing whatever shiny object a customer has, and there are a ton of uh, really cool designs that I would love to go after. But we have some proven uh, capabilities and some validation in certain markets. And it's much easier to build a business based on that validation rather than uh, than chase you know myriad other possibilities. So, I would say that we are more focused on aerospace, um, but not to the exclusion of everything else. Just trying to really drive the business uh, from that perspective. If I'm intrigued, let's say I'm, I work at a corporate or some some uh, aerospace company, so I'm intrigued and want to get my hands on some some Velo 3D parts or something. What, what, how would I work with you? Or what's the path? Are you open for business right now? Can I just walk in and buy a machine? Do I have to wait two years? Or <laughs> so we see we see it not so much as machine sales, honestly. At this point, the thing that we're focused on is finding parts that are challenging currently and that our technology is a good solution for. And the way that we see it, if you can find a part where the business case and the technology case makes sense, then the machine sale is kind of a, a follow-on activity. And that could go either to a contract manufacturer who ends up making the parts under contract or to the OEM themselves if they wanna have in-house production capabilities. But I think that speaks to the two different ways that we also uh, interact with potential customers one of which is to work with them directly. So if you go on our website, um, you can find a link to info at velo3d.com um, and you can send us a request. 
where we can engage with our sales team and our applications team to identify parts that have both good business cases and are technically good fits. Um, and then we also have our uh, manufacturing alliance, which is a group of contract manufacturers um, who are willing to do the same thing and who have systems on site ready to produce parts for customers. Um, and right now, Stratasys Direct and, and Protolabs are um, two primary candidates for that path. Yeah, are you guys all going to play nice with each other and work together? I mean, it is it is a bit of a tricky thing to say, like, you know, who actually gets the, if Lockheed walks in, I'm just saying, I don't know, uh, who actually gets the customer or who actually gets that, that kind of relationship or actually does the, the application development work? I mean. Yep. Yeah, we, one thing that we found is that OEM customers in general who are interested in, in metal additive generally already have some established relationships with contract manufacturers. Um, and so, you know, I think we, we try to be sensitive to what the customer actually wants and who they're comfortable working with um, and, and try to connect them with people who, who we feel they'd be a good fit with. But, you know, ultimately it's a open marketplace. So people will be bidding against each other and kind of um, um, marketing their value add to the end customer. Are, are you guys going to do like production of parts or is that strictly something that that, 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 that you're or at volume, let's say, right? Is that is that something you would do or is that something that you would really want partners to be doing? Yeah, we, we actually are completely opposed to doing production work. We uh, very early on decided on a couple of uh, kind of frameworks for our business that we, we won't reconsider. And one of them is that we won't compete with our customers. We refuse to take production orders for parts, um, but we're happy to do some of the business development to get those production orders to our customers. And if you see this market developing, I mean, I think, you know, there are certain large companies that are, are very, very active in this sphere. There's, there's, there's three printing specific businesses like like Stratus Direct, like Red Eye. Um, but there's also like like really large contract manufacturing companies. Is, is it, you know, who is easier to shift here? Because, you know, do you, do you, is it easier to shift like the large aerospace company or do you really need to do another sell then with the manufacturer again? Uh, or is it just, if you unlock the business logic, then all the, the, the dominoes fall in place or how does that work? Yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit of the latter really, which is that if we are talking to um, a product group or somebody who has design authority, um, or, or manufacturing authority, somebody in supply chain or somebody in engineering. And we can demonstrate to them that our uh, technology has a value, whether that's you know uh, part count reduction or improved performance or uh, second sourcing um, and, and lead time reduction, then the demand is driven by the customer and they're able to work either internally to get systems or with their supply chain to push systems into their supply chain and it's a little bit more organic because it's not a, it's not as much of the kind of if you build it, they will come mentality. It's more of a, this is a person with validated demand for a part that can only be printed on a on a Velo Sapphire, um, and so it makes the contract manufacturer much more comfortable to make the purchase, or the technology group inside the OEM much more comfortable with making that purchase. And you mentioned that there were like flight hardware parts that you guys were, were making or somebody was making them. Can you tell us a little bit more about that application or what that kind of part is or for industry, anything that you're comfortable with sharing on that or no is also a good answer. <laughs> no, I think we can, we can uh, hint at it roughly. So um, it's definitely aerospace propulsion um, and more on the new space side than like a civilian aircraft. 
Okay, so something in that area. I mean, that that to me is one of the most exciting areas. I mean, I think, I think you know they're all investing very very heavily in in, in, in also polymer, but also like metal AM technologies, large scale like DED, and also smaller scale. I think, I think we're really going to be if we do believe in commercial space as an industry, like both you know CubeSat to launch vehicle to uh, everything uh, that you read about in the media every day. Um, the, the 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 key enabling technology will be 3D printing, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's. For me, it's one of the most interesting industries to play in also, because I think the business case for, you know, the, the constellations of satellites, of low Earth orbit satellites, is just amazing to, to learn about and kind of um, see come to fruition. And then, you know, you got to have some way to get those satellites to orbit. So it drives this whole other industry that serves these um, satellite providers. And, and right now is kind of uh, a really interesting time in launch service providers because you have all of this the development going on and you know some consolidation and and technology validation it's it's a really dynamic industry i'm just curious if you have tried yet or if you know if it's capable to to add metal onto a surface if you maybe want to try to repair cooling or as a way an alternative way of welding almost between two metal parts i think with laser powder bed systems this is something that is definitely a possibility um, the limitation here is that you really need to start from a planar surface. Um, so if you're trying to repair like the outer diameter of a pipe, that's not a very good candidate because it's a curved surface. But if you have, you know, a flat surface that you're trying to build on top of, um, I think that's something that's been done, especially like injection molding tooling. Mm -hmm. That's That's been used quite a bit in the past um, and, and I think with a pretty decent amount of success. The reason that that's yeah that's also really exciting, but also is it is it possible then to do gradient materials? Are you exploring that? I mean, I think you know for Arcam EBM and 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 some stuff has been done on, on laser powder bed as well. But is this yeah. something you guys are exploring? Or? Gradient materials become a little bit more challenging. I, a little bit is maybe not the right word. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot. yeah um, because of the recoding technology. So you kind of you would have to have like a dynamically changing mix of powder going into your recoding system to be mm -hmm. able to do uh, gradients. And then I think the other thing that makes it that's, that's kind of challenging about it is after you're done, you have this powder bed that has this gradient in it and there's no good way to really separate it back out. So you, you end up wasting sure. a pretty decent amount of material. Um, so I think like functionally graded materials is something that, you know, may not end up being a laser powder bed application. Um, but I, I, from an engineering perspective, there's a ton of potential there, and it's definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting technology. Yeah, I, lo I love the just idea. It just changes everything. I think it's it's one of these things that, that either we've spent a long time talking about, and no one actually end up using, or it's going to be like a, you know really completely change the functionality of everything, like how everything is designed. Yeah, and and looking at graded materials, I think there is the material composition aspect of it, but with a lot of the newer design tools that are coming along, you can also have topologically graded materials. And I know that in the past, in, in engineering applications that I've worked on, we've looked at ways to you know, change the stiffness uh, as a function of, of geometry. And when you can do you know, lattices or uh, gyroid TPMS type surfaces that are functionally graded, um, you, can, you can make some very cool parts that can do some pretty amazing things uh, that can only be made with the combination of these advanced design softwares and metal additive manufacturing. 
That's a really exciting frontier as well. I mean, I think just gradient and just, just topology generally, and and going from a place where where everyone is not thinking about like what we spec the surface of things. Like you know, if we gave everything a golf ball surface, would everything change? Would everything function differently? <laughs> I think that that's that's apparently it's like if you join a Formula One team, it's like the first thing that everyone says. It's like you're pancake mistake right that we should give everything a golf ball surface and then it'll work right so maybe, that, maybe that's like the, the the similar thing apparently maybe in, in topology optimization that it won't actually really do that much i'm just really hopeful that it would it would, it would change so many things yeah yeah i think we're it really is just kind of the tip of the iceberg right now in terms of uh realizing useful applications for the design capabilities and the manufacturing capabilities. And are you looking at like materials like intermetallics and stuff like that or? We're trying to be very customer driven in terms of the materials that we're working with. I think it kind of goes back to your question about the industry focus that we have. Um, we have very strong demand for a few specific materials and they're not incredibly exotic because when you get into the more exotic things, the market shrinks pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it may be a little bit uh, more boring, I guess, but um, a lot of the materials that we're looking at are uh, things that other people are currently printing in. And you did mention before that you were kind of looking at this from a systems integrator approach, and you kind of went away from that and came up with a holistic kind of machine software approach. And that then leaves again that there's no systems integrators in our industry. I mean, is that something you're, you're working on trying to build about? Because if you're working with like a company like Boeing or something, you know, these guys have a high degree of expertise and a high degree of like self-same way of doing things, let's say. Uh, and the volumes aren't that huge, right? So it kind of locks us into to that kind of limited market, which, you know, could be huge if we do make like a ton of, if we replace all the rivets or whatever, you know. And so there's, <laughs> there, 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 is, there is a lot of like, you know, potential there. But I'm just saying that if there still isn't like a company, I think uh, the guys from uh, SMS Group are kind of like, you know, they're, 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 they'll, they'll, they'll build you a 3D printing factory, I think. And then Gefferta, uh, there's a couple of companies that, that are kind of working on this automation thing. Is that something you guys are working on? I mean, you have an advantage or uh, you claim to have a distinct advantage in, in support removal and being able to just fish the parts out of the bed. But are you working on like, like setting up, like turning your machine into a line or you don't see that as really very exciting? No, I think that is absolutely very exciting. Um, and that's one of the the promises of additive manufacturing that really and truly have not been realized yet. Our A, a lot of the people in our company come from semiconductor. I think mm -hmm. I mentioned that before. And one of the things that you realize when you look at a semiconductor fab versus uh, metal additive manufacturing shop is that in semiconductor, it is like the highest degree of manufacturing excellence that exists in the world. And that's not something that you can say about a lot of uh, metal additive manufacturing because the systems just aren't there yet. The development hasn't been there to kind of get you to that point. Um, so a lot of what we're, we were looking at when we originally designed the system was, let's make sure that we design a system that is capable of getting us to overall equipment effectiveness levels that are similar to what you would get out of semiconductor. And let's make sure that the tools that we're making when they come out of the factory are kind of following Intel's copy exact mantra, where if you give the same part uh, instruction file to a number of different Velo Sapphires spread all over the globe, the part that you get at the end of the day is identical. They're indistinguishable. Um, and that kind of, of manufacturing pedigree and, and focus on, um, on really professional manufacturing is something that I think additive can learn a lot from 
And, and that's where a lot of the maturation is going to be in the next five to 10 years. So you are looking a little bit in this kind of like actually integrating it, actually making it a manufacturing technology, but also actually like, you know, integrating with conveying equipment and post-processing and that kind of thing. Or... Yeah, our, our system has actually been architected from the ground up to be automated. Currently, it's not, but all of the hooks are in to, to build a factory uh, that is automated. So there's, there's not, the system was designed with a production focus in mind, and, and a lot of that is based around automation. I think one really good example that's, that's a very concrete example here is if you're going to automate build changeovers in a metal additive system, you have to make sure that a human doesn't need to be present for those build changeovers. And one of the really annoying things about laser powder bed systems currently is that you have to clean the laser window in between every build. Yeah. Um, so when we were architecting the system, one of the things that we said was we have to design a system where you don't have to clean the laser window. And that sounds kind of crazy if you're used to standard systems, but we have a system now where our our purge gas that keeps the windows clean and the design of the windows themselves is such that we don't clean our windows. We go three to four months in between window cleanings and we have the metrology on board to actually validate that the window is clean and that you are delivering uh, the same amount of power um, to a certain area in a certain time that, that you need to to nominally have a good process. That's a small detail, but it kind of speaks to our intent to have the system be uh, kind of this higher level of manufacturing professionalism. Yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting because there are some systems that would require like maybe an entire shift set up in between builds, right? I mean, uh, we're talking like several several hours to maybe six, seven, eight hours to turn around a machine. Yeah, and if you think about just cleaning the window, um, it depends. It can depend on which technician cleans the window because you can get varying results, right? And so that's just a that is a touch point of the system that can lead to variability in your product as it comes out of the machine. And if you can eliminate that and also build it so that it's kind of future-proofed for automation, then uh, you should absolutely do that. And where do you guys see the future to be? Like if we're talking about five years from now or something like that, where do you guys want to be? I think one of the big things that Metal Additive needs to address next is just the cost of parts. So one of the reasons that aerospace and, and medical are the early adopters of the technology is that they make very high value components and they make them in alloys that quite frankly are a pain in the ass to work with. <laughs> um, and, and, and so it makes sense, right? To make these net shape or, or final shape components in metal additive. But when you look at something like automotive, the cost is just too high currently for parts printed uh, in a laser powder bed system. And so I think in our roadmap, the goal is to drive down the cost of parts by you know, a, a significant factor um, several times so that you can end up with parts that really are, you know, com cost competitive with high volume casting um, and, and drive the technology into applications where right now it just doesn't make any sense. Okay. That sounds very ambitious. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Zach Murphy, for giving us a, more of an insight into what Velo uh, hopes to bring to the market and, and what you guys are capable of doing right now. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, some exciting stuff. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks, everyone else, for listening. Uh, my name is Joris Peels. I was here today uh, with Zach Murphy of uh, Velo3D and Maxwell Vogue of uh, 3 Doodler. And uh, we hope you learned a lot and we hope you enjoyed the podcast and uh, enjoyed the 3D pod. And
yeah, give us lots of feedback and tell us where to improve. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.